All right, we're going uh, to pick up tonight in uh, verse 15 of chapter 2 of Galatians. We've we got a lot of ground to cover, so I want to get right to it. Galatians 2.15. Um, so before we, uh, before we get to, to reading, um, Galatians is a great it's, a, it's an awesome letter to study. Uh, there are some really powerful truths here, really foundational truths. But if you really study it, and especially if you go back to the book of Acts and study chapter 13, 14, and 15, which kind of provides the historical context for when Paul was writing. By the way, this is, this is one of the earliest letters that Paul wrote. This is a very early letter. Um, we don't know exactly when it was written, but I tend, to, I tend to believe that it was written before the Acts 15 council in Jerusalem that was called to sort out these Jew and Gentile issues. Um, I encourage you to go read Acts 13, 14, and 15 um, if you want to get a, a deeper insight there. But Paul was a Jew of Jews. He was top of his class. He was exceeding many of his peers in knowledge and understanding. And it wasn't just book learning. He was out there walking the walk. So much so that he was persecuting followers of Jesus. He was persecuting those Jews who had put their trust in Jesus and turn to follow him and acknowledge Jesus as the Messiah and as the Lord. And he was out to say, no, this cannot be. This is not, this is, this is, uh, um, this is heresy. We must put a stop to this. This is threatening our, um, our traditions. This is threatening everything that we give our lives to. And so he approved of the execution of the first martyr of the church, Stephen. His name was Saul then. And, I, you know, along the line, somewhere along the line, he changed his name. Um, and it's, it, it doesn't say, it wasn't something like an Abraham name change where God, where there was something really meaningful to it. It just says, at one point in Acts, it says Saul, who was also called Paul. And then it just moves on from there. Um, I don't know if that was because of the reputation that he had built up before. And he's like, I, need, I think we need a, a little bit of a rebranding here. Um, everybody knows Saul. Saul kills Christians, right? Um, but he tells his story here in the beginning of this book. He tells his story that I was, basically he's saying, listen, I was one of you all. I was one of you zealous Jews. I get where you're coming from. But if you really understood the gospel, it would change everything for you. And so I love how Paul opens the letter with his testimony. And it's a, it's a testimony that's given as sort of an apology, a defense of the things that he's about to say. But he's still quick to give his testimony. He says that the revelation back in chapter 1, he says the gospel, by the way, we're going to talk about the gospel tonight. Uh, We talked about pleasing man as sort of the foundational error that runs through the whole letter. 
And uh, tonight we're just going to talk about the gospel. Because he's, he's worried that they're leaving the gospel that he proclaimed. And he says in chapter 1, verse 11, I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. This is something that happened. I was on my way to persecute more Christians. And Jesus showed up and revealed himself to me. And Paul did not then leave Judaism. Suddenly Judaism, the whole point of it, and what it was after all along, suddenly made sense when he encountered Jesus. And that changed everything for him. And he didn't really abandon his ways of life. But in Jesus, everything, it was a complete paradigm shift. Everything that he knew about the law suddenly made, it went from like two-dimensional to three-dimensional. And he understood it. He saw it much more clearly. And so when Paul talks about the gospel, he's talking about what happened to him, what was revealed to him on the road to Damascus. That Jesus is everything that I was zealous for, but I didn't know it. I was zealous for the wrong things. I was, I was focusing on the wrong things. I thought the law was for one thing, but it, I didn't understand what the law was for. And now I do because I've met Jesus and I've met him in person. And it was a revelation of the Son of God to me. And that revelation of the Son of God is what Jesus builds his church on. As individuals encounter Jesus by the Holy Spirit, understand who he is, respond by faith to, in the gospel, he transforms their lives by the Holy Spirit. Same as Paul. And so when we talk about the gospel, we're not talking about, you know, the, the presentations of the gospel that we often are familiar with. That there is a God-shaped hole in your heart, you know? And you, there, no matter how hard you tried you were you were never going to work your way to heaven and so jesus came down so that that he could fill that hole in your heart and so that you could stop trying to earn your way to heaven and just believe so that when you died you'll go to heaven instead of hell now there's nothing like heretical about that but it is such a shell it's, it's such a it's such a bare bones sketch of the gospel that Paul's preaching, it, it's almost, it, it almost is unrecognizable, right? Paul, the gospel that Paul was preaching started in Genesis 1 <laughs> and ran all the way through the Old Testament to then, right? He, he calls it the fullness of times in this, in this letter. He says, <laughs> when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. And it has, this is what I want to say about the letter to Galatians. It it is so often used to figure out how salvation works, how we are saved. The word salvation, the, the, the verb saved, never appears in this letter. Now it says justified by faith, but salvation is never discussed in this letter in the way that we understand salvation 
the eternal state of our souls after we die. That's never discussed in this letter. What is discussed is how Jews and Gentiles are to live in the same body, how to live in the same family. And so we have to get out of the way that we view some of these, these discussions that Paul has. We can't bring, you guys have heard me say this so many times, we can't bring 20th century questions, we can't read 20th century questions into this letter. We can't read even 16th century, 17th century theological questions into this letter because that's not what Paul was addressing. Some of these scriptures were very important to those, uh, you know, to the reformers who were trying to correct some of the abuses of the Catholic Church and say, no, we aren't saved by selling indulgences. You know, it doesn't get us any status before God. Sure. But that's not why Paul wrote the letter. Does that make sense? And so there's so much fog. It's like the book of Romans because it's used in a similar way. It's like the book of Romans. There's so much there's so much, so many layers that have been built on top of it. If we can clear it away and really see what he's saying here, we will really experience a deep blessing and understand, uh, understand who Jesus is so much more fully. Okay, so what he's saying here, he says, first of all, I'm astonished you're leaving the gospel. How are they leaving the gospel? They're making distinctions in social settings between Jews and Gentiles. Okay, that's the problem. They're not trying to earn salvation by doing good deeds. That's not the problem Paul was addressing. They are making distinctions among themselves between Jew and Gentile based on outward markers, traditional markers of separations of Jew and Gentile. They're not eating together. People are saying you have to be circumcised if you're really going to be a real Christian. And so Paul's concern much more is the social separation that's happening and not the moral striving. Right? He's not really addressing moral striving in this letter. You could probably learn some things about moral striving, particularly if you're doing it to please man. Yeah, there's some great things in this letter for you. But what he's more focusing on is how Jesus is everything. That Jesus changes everything. And that Jesus is a completely new way of relating to God. And the new, as Jesus would say, there, there are new wineskins. Right? And we can't pour new wine into old wineskins because they'll break. This new thing that God has done... If you try and cram it back into the old thing, it breaks. It falls apart. Because that was never meant to bring about this new and better way. Okay? So, he says, and he, he, he gives his testimony, chapter 1 and 2, and he gets to the point where he says, and I had to even call out Peter. Why did he call out Peter? Because Peter was trying to earn his way to heaven? No, because Peter was operating in freedom and eating with Gentiles and embracing them as members of the same family until these, until these other guys showed up. And then he withdrew and went back to the old ways. All right? 
When they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. So, again, it's more about man-pleasing and, and living in an old way, even though Christ has set us free from that old way. And he calls it hypocrisy. And he says, when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, right? This is what he's concerned with. The gospel as it pertains to the way that they're separating themselves in and positioning themselves in their community. He says, this is not the gospel. He doesn't look at them really trying to do a good job and say, you're trying to earn your way to heaven. He looks at them clinging to these old traditions and he says, this isn't, if you really understood the gospel, you wouldn't be doing this anymore. I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? Okay, and this begins his unpacking of the gospel as it really relates to this situation that they found themselves in. Okay, so we're gonna, I'm going to just kind of buzz through this, but uh, it's really powerful if you, if you get a hold of it. So he says, we ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. He says, yeah, we were born Jewish. We have the ethnic markers. Sure. Yet we know, and he's saying we, as if he's talking to, uh, and in some translations actually even continue his quote, uh, the quotations all the way through the end of chapter two, right? If he says, I said to Cephas before them all, and then it begins a quote, some translations end the quote all the way down at the end of chapter two, which is interesting. So if you imagine Peter saying this to Paul, and when he says we, at the very least, he's saying we Jews. He says, let me talk to you Jews. We are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. But you know the gospel. We're not justified by works of the law. right? That, that, didn't, that doesn't set us apart and, and bring us into the family of God. But through faith in Jesus Christ. Now, this is actually, in Greek, it's the faith of Jesus Christ, okay? And um, not to get into nitpicky hermeneutics, but I think it's really important here to read it that way. Because he's talking about faith also means faithfulness, loyalty, right? When someone is unfaithful in their marriage, it's the opposite of faithful, right? It's the opposite of having faith. So he says, through the faithfulness of Jesus, so we also, we also, in addition to everyone else who's getting saved through Jesus, we have believed. And that's the same word, faith. That's just the verb form, okay? So he says, Jesus was the faithful one. Jesus was the man of faith. He upheld the covenant perfectly in a way that nobody ever had or ever could. And he did it. So through his faithfulness, we place our trust in him because we see the way that he lived his life and we deem him worthy of of all of our trust. And so we believe in him in order to be justified by the faithfulness of Christ and not by the works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. All right, so he says it's by what Jesus did. It's not by, because flesh trying to fulfill the law Never worked. It didn't work in the very beginning. It never worked at any point all the way through. <laughs> right? 
the law, and he says, we'll come back to the law. We'll talk about why God even gave the law and what purpose it serves. But nobody was ever going to read the law, do it, and so, you know, bring about the kind of redemption in the earth that God had promised Abraham. That was never going to happen through the law. The law played a role in that purpose, but it was never going to happen. By the way, the gospel here, in a nutshell, is that God has been faithful to his promise to Abraham in Jesus Christ. God has fulfilled his promise to Abraham in Jesus. And if you were a Jew, that would be an, that, that's an, that is a mind-blowing proclamation. Right? But if, if Abraham is not included in your understanding of the gospel, you have an incomplete understanding of the gospel. If it starts with you and your separation from God and Jesus came to bring you back to God, it's incomplete at best. Right? Jesus, the person of Jesus, is the fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham, and that is significant to everybody on the face of the earth. Why is that? Because God promised Abraham that through him, all the families of the earth would be blessed. Why did he do that? You read Genesis 1 through 11. He created man for fellowship with him. Man turned away from that fellowship, was cast out of the place that he wanted to have fellowship with him. Uh, and then God, it got so wicked, and I'm skipping many steps here, but it got so wicked that God had to flood the whole earth. Then he started over with Noah's family and said, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth. I came and I judged the earth because it had gone completely off course and I chose one family to preserve and repopulate the earth. Let's start over. That didn't really start off on the right foot. And so before too long, people were banding together, trying to make a name for themselves and using all of their God-given capacity to take dominion to make a name for themselves and not to bring the presence of God into the earth, but to, but to exalt themselves above the earth. They built a tower up to the heavens. And God says, look, at, look, look what they can do. I mean, I made them, I gave them the capacity to do this. And they're doing lots of great things, but they're doing it completely apart from me. And so we're going to have to come down and do something again. Not a flood, because he promised not to do that again. But what did he do? He scattered them into different languages. And so there became this scattered, and it says they they dispersed throughout the whole earth. And then at that point, God goes and he finds one family, and he says, we still have a lot of work to do. (laughs) The goal is to redeem all of mankind back to the garden, to bring people back into the presence of God. How are we going to do that? Well, I'm going to work through one family, and I'm going to bless him. And through his offspring, I am going to bring all the families of the earth back into the one family of God. That was how he was going to do it. And so from Abraham on, God is going to save the world to bring mankind, all nations, all those languages, back into the one family of God through Abraham's family. Abraham's family did not do so good. As they became a nation and as they became a kingdom, they became 
uh, it became more and more evident that what they were doing was not saving the nations, but what they were doing was actually conforming to the nations. And all the wickedness and all the evil and all the curse that God hated, that he wanted to free all the nations of the earth from, all of that same stuff had crept into his own people. And so now God's plan for salvation itself is in need of saving. The, the ark, of you could say, if, if we're talking in Noah terms, the ark has sprung a leak. And now the ship that's supposed to preserve a remnant of humanity to repopulate the earth, now that ship is taking on water. And that's what happened in the people of Israel. That all of the destruction and all of the sin and all of the adultery and all the murder, it was going on, it was still happening in God's people, in God's family. And so God gave them the law. And he said, no, this is how you're supposed to live. They never lived up to it. Although the law was good and it declared a good thing, it declared God's will, there was something missing between the people's receipt of the law and their living that law out. All right, so Christ came and, and Paul says, and now we understand that it was, it was always in Christ that God was going to fulfill his promise to Abraham. And if our, he says, in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners. Is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. So he says, we too, we've, we've realized that we, are, we, we receive justification in the same way that all the other families of the earth receive justification. He says, so does Christ then, is he a servant of sin? Um, he says, no. But, and here's the problem, verse 18. For if I rebuild what I tore down, meaning if I go back to trying to do my best to live out what the law says, what does the law say? Put it back up. What's on the, put the wall back up. That, that Jesus tore down, put the wall back up that separates Jew from Gentile, right? Out there, it says you're a sinner because you're not living like this. But in here, on this side of the wall, on the Jew side of the wall, what does it say? You're a sinner too. <laughs> you failed too. That's the, that's the message of the prophets, that God's people themselves have also failed. So when you put that wall back up, what are you doing? You're just proving, yep, still sinful. Still unable to, to keep the law. You're proving yourself to be a transgressor. And this is where he gets, for through the law, I died to the law. The law was meant to be a death sentence on all sin. That's really what the law is. The law is a death sentence on all sin. Jesus came became sin, became Israel, became humanity, all brought together in one and was killed. That's why the death sentence was actually carried out on Jesus for Israel, for humanity itself. That's why he says, born of a woman, born under the law. Right? As a man and as a Jew, Jesus was it. It was all in him. For through the law, 
I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. Why have I been crucified with Christ? Well, as, as, as Paul, as a Jew, because that's Messiah. What is Messiah? Messiah is the representative head of the Jews. He's the king. And as it, as it goes to the king, so it goes to all the people. So if the Messiah was crucified for the sin of his people, then I in him was crucified. But then he was raised. And so I with him was also raised. So it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So I don't nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. It was always going to be the death of the Messiah. That's what the, that's what the whole story was pointing to. And he says, if you don't see that, and you're still living in the old way, then you've missed the gospel. You don't understand that, you don't understand the life that we are now uh, able to live in Jesus. So he says, foolish Galatians, you saw him, that he was killed. He was crucified. And he says, and you received the spirit. Let me, let me ask you this. Did you receive the spirit by works of the law? Or because you got a revelation of Jesus and you put your trust in him? You understood who he was and you turned to him in faith. And as you did that, you received new life. Did you receive the spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? And then he says, and if it was by the spirit, then why are you now living out your life in the old way? It, something new has begun in you by the Holy Spirit. You think that's going to come to completion in the flesh? No, it's going to be by the spirit. Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law? Or by hearing with faith, just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Okay, so the gospel, he says it in several different ways. And let me just read some of those. Here's one way that he restates the gospel. It is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify, that is, bring into the family of God, justify the Gentiles by faith, <laughs> preach the gospel beforehand to Abraham. He pre-evangelized Abraham. That's the word. It's just one word, preach the gospel beforehand. Can you imagine one word meaning that? Preach the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. He said, what's the gospel? That God's going to bless the world through Abraham. That's the gospel. And he says, and he preached it beforehand to Abraham. So then, those who are of faith are blessed. Are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. If you rely on the law, he says that the, the furthest that gets you is Cursed. Death sentence. Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. If you're going to go that route, 
you've got to achieve perfection. Not going to happen. Just briefly scan through history. It's, it's not going to happen. But the law was an overbearing curse on the human race, particularly on the, on the Jewish people, but Christ redeemed us from the curse by becoming a curse. Curse is everyone who's hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, and this is the gospel, this is the gospel that he's preaching, in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. So that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. That's the gospel. That's the gospel. He talks about uh, the covenant and the difference between the law and the promise. He says what, what came before the law, way before the law, was the promise to Abraham. I am going to bless the world through you. The law happened, he says, 430 years after that promise was made and didn't change the promise at all, but was part of the way that God was working to fulfill the promise. What was that part? Why then the law? Verse 19. It was added because of transgressions, because people were going on sinning, particularly my people were going on sinning. They weren't any different from the world. So I had to say, no, this is this is how I created us to live. This is how I created human beings to live. You're to be a, an example to the rest of the world of what, what humans beings are supposed to, to be and do and treat one another and how to relate to me. It was added because of transgressions. So at very best, it was just a fence, right? It was like, it was like hazard tape around a terrible accident, right? All right, yeah, this is, this is really bad what's going on here. Okay, don't, don't go in there. Until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. Verse 21, is the law then contrary to the promises of God? So if God promised that it would always be by, that it was by faith and that he would bless the world through Abraham and the law wasn't going to accomplish, so is it, is it contrary to the promise? No. But here's what it did, verse 22. The scripture imprisoned everything under sin. It pronounced, like I said, it's, it's a death sentence on all sin. Scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. By the promise, by the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. The promise was fulfilled by the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. And so all who now believe in him receive the blessing of the promise. Right? He showed it. He was the offspring. Right? It wasn't Isaac. Isaac was just a type of the one who was to come. So then the law was our guardian, our babysitter, right? We had to have some sort of boundary, some sort of, some sort of earthly testimony to the way humans should behave. And there has to be a people governed by that law in the earth so that when the promise is fulfilled, we'll understand who Jesus is, who the sons of God are. We are no longer... Uh, 
So the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we may be justified by faith. So the law was our guardian, was our babysitter. It said, this is right, this is wrong. So there's some record of right and wrong in the earth. But it was never meant to make and create in a people the embodiment of that right and wrong. Jesus came and embodied perfectly the law, but also represented perfectly the whole human race. So all of heaven and all of earth became one in Jesus, and so God could punish all sin, enact all of the curses on the law, unleash all of the, uh, all of the consequences of sin, and say we are going to do away with sin once and for all. And now anyone who wants to look at Jesus and understand what a man, what a woman is by looking at him and say, I follow you. I place all of my trust in you. You are what it means to be a human being. You are the way to, to, to God. You are God himself. You are the perfect image of everything that God has always wanted from the human race. I trust you. I believe you. Now, because God has dealt with all sin in him, he can say, your sins are forgiven. Come and receive the Holy Spirit. Receive the benefits of the promise that I made to Abraham. Come into the family. Now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. We don't need the guardian anymore. We don't need the babysitter. For in Christ Jesus, we're not just, you know, it's not just our eternal status has been changed. We're now sons of God. That was the, that's what God has been trying to restore the whole time. His sons walked out on him. His sons rebelled, and he wants them back. You are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. So we're not, to, we're not making distinctions anymore. Jew, Greek, those old distinctions have passed away. Because the whole reason that there was a distinction was to say that this is God's chosen people. This is the, the people that live the way God wants. And if you want to live the way God wants, come and join these people. Well, these people did a terrible job of that. But Jesus didn't. Jesus was the faithful one. And he lived exactly the way God wanted him to. And so now we, go, we don't go join the Jewish people to live the way God wants us to live. We go join Jesus. And in joining ourselves to Jesus, we live the way that God wants human beings to live. That's the gospel. That's what Jesus accomplished. And that's why the law could never accomplish that. Because we were going to continue to fail. Because it's in our flesh. right? And our flesh had to be dealt with. And he says, so now you're sons. But what that also means is now that you, now you're heirs. You have an inheritance. And this is another big Abraham word. Right? Abraham was promised uh, to be the blessing, to, to bless all nations. But key aspects of that promise were he was going to be given a son. And he was going to inherit a place, a land. Right? 
And um, he promised Abraham a son and a land, a, 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 a territory. And he says, and now we've become sons and we also have an inheritance. But it's not just the physical city of Jerusalem. Because he gets into that later. He says, the present Jerusalem, they live according to the law. You know, their boundaries are, are geographical Jerusalem right now. But he, he says this in uh, verse 4. I mean, in chapter 4. Verse 25. Now, Hagar is Mount Sinai. This is when he's contrasting Abraham's two sons. The one was after the flesh. One was by the spirit, by the promise. And he says, we are in the lineage of the sons of the promise. The son of the flesh, what happened to him? The son of Hagar. It's Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free. And she is our mother. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Now you, brothers, like Isaac, are children of the promise. We are like Isaac. Back in chapter 4, verse 4. Or just start in verse 1. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. When an heir is a child... Really, no different than a slave, right? You don't have, you're not in charge of anything. You as, a, you as an heir, as a child, you're no different than a slave. You're under a guardian and manager until the date set by your father. In the same way, when we were children, we're enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And so even Jews had to receive the adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. They weren't automatically sons. They were maybe ethnically sons of Abraham, but they were not truly sons of God. They still had to receive the same kind of adoption as sons as everybody else. But now that that adoption has taken place, it says the Spirit has been sent into our hearts, and we cry, Abba, Father. We are no longer a slave, but a son. And if we are a son, we are an heir through God. That's an amazing thing. We've been given full adoption. We've been given full inheritance, full inclusion in the family of God. So he's talking to a group of people that want to segregate based on outward markers of Jewish traditions. And he says, how in the world is that conduct in any way in step with the gospel of Jesus Christ? If you've really understood the gospel, how in the world can you separate yourselves from each other based on the the traditions of Torah? Now, to make a very long story short, the last two chapters, he says, so you're free. You're free from distinguishing yourselves based on the old lines, the old markers. The old outward segregation. But he says, but let me tell you, 
when you become a son of God, when you are set free, you become like him. And the way that you live in your freedom now has nothing to do with the flesh. You don't take your flesh and receive freedom in the flesh and now go do whatever the heck your flesh wants. No, you receive the Holy Spirit. And the Spirit begins to work itself out in your life and you subdue the flesh and you take dominion over the flesh by the Spirit. And then every aspect of your life, the old goes away and the new comes. Do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. Don't be like the Jews who were freed from Egypt and then just kept complaining that they wanted to go back to Egypt. For freedom you were set free. To live in a totally different way. So so divorce yourself from that old way of life and live by the Spirit. He says, if you live by the Spirit, walk by the Spirit. (laughs) In other words, if, if you've been made alive by the Holy Spirit, then live every minute in the Holy Spirit. Don't just say, well, the Spirit saved me, and now I still live my life however I want. No, the Spirit saved me, and now every moment of my day is lived out in the Holy Spirit. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. So he gives a very brief and very clear list. If he says, now you guys know what the flesh does, right? It's pretty obvious. And he lists just basically, you know, covers a wide gamut of human sin. That's the flesh. But the fruit of the Spirit, the markers of the sons and daughters of God are love, joy, peace, patience. And if you belong to Christ Jesus, all of the the works of the flesh, and here he is talking about actual sins. It's It's not just works of the law. He says the works of the law actually don't do anything really about the works of the flesh. But if you are in Christ Jesus, it's no longer works of the law, but also what the law was trying to get rid of, all these works of the flesh, those are actually dealt with too. Yeah, you do stop sinning. But you don't do it so that you can segregate yourselves and persecute one another who don't live in the way that you live. You do it because that's who God is. And you do it in a spirit of freedom. And then he kind of he closes he closes with this in uh, chapter six verse fourteen. But far be it from me to boast. He says these guys that want to get you circumcised, they just want to boast in your flesh. They want to kind of stake their claim on your life, make you dependent on them, add you to their little notches of converts or whatever. He says, far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which. The world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. A new creation. God has started all the way over in Jesus. And now all of human life starts with him. We're no longer starting with Adam and seeing how we can manage things in this fall. No. God has done a completely new thing. And the human race has been redefined. What it means to belong to God has been redefined. It's no longer on Jew-Gentile boundaries. It is all in Christ. 
And as we live in him, the new creation goes forth and the curse is reversed as we live by the fruits of the spirit. Amen. So that's that's Galatians. The gospel. Don't live (laughs) making divisions amongst yourselves is a clear indication that you haven't understood the gospel. Here's what the gospel is. And here's how you should be living in community with one another, serving one another, bearing with one another. We're, we're, not, we're not reinforcing old social boundaries anymore. We are living in a way that is loving, in a way that is totally given to one another in service. Amen. This is a great little thing over here to, to meditate on when we come out of the letter of Galatians. Right here, I have been crucified with Christ on these little cards. You guys have been maybe in services where they've done this before, but uh, on these little cards are like sin, you know, probably some man pleasing, probably some legalism. It's all nailed together. And what a great, um, what a great time for this thing to be here in the sanctuary uh, to give us a, a good image of the gospel. Jesus died. And all, all the futility of the human race died with him. And all the futility of your life died with Jesus. And so put all of your trust in him. Follow him with every fiber of your being. And in doing so, you receive the Holy Spirit. You receive adoption as sons. You receive direct access to the Father. You receive the deep love and knowledge of the Father. And you receive the inheritance of living. You receive, you inherit the kingdom of God. You become an heir of the realm of the king. And you now become a a representative of the kingdom. And he says, those who live in the flesh, they do not inherit the kingdom of God. You know, we kind of reduce that to, if you do these things, you won't get into heaven. But what breaks God's heart more than that is if you do these things, heaven can't get into earth. If you do these things, nobody knows who God is through your life. If you do these things, you're perpetuating the old sin that was crucified with Jesus. Don't do those things anymore. By the Spirit, live this way. And you become, you inherit the kingdom of God because the Jerusalem that is above isn't going to be above for all time. Eventually, she's going to come down as a bride adorned for her husband and the dwelling place of God is with man. And we inherit the kingdom. And those who cling to the old ways, who cling to the ways of the flesh, they are taken away once and for all. So... We do these things because we're sons of God. We live. It's the fruit of the Spirit. He says, stop sowing to the flesh. Stop sowing to the flesh. Because then what do you do? You just reap the flesh. Sow to the Spirit. And you reap eternal life. Amen. Well, one of the ways that we, um, that we sow to the Spirit is by sharing the Lord's Supper together. 
It does something. Theologians have tried to explain it in precise terms. I don't know if we can really comprehend what it does. But it does something to bring us closer to God and to bring us closer to one another. As we remember Jesus, the Holy Spirit is here ministering the life of Jesus to us and calling us together in one body, the body of Christ. And so I want us to meditate on, meditate on the fact that we are in Christ. As we come to the table, we, it, Paul says we participate, we participate in the life of Christ. We don't just receive, although that's an amazing thing. We receive the life of Christ, but then we participate in the life of Christ. And the way that Christ lived his life is the way that he invites us to join him in living out his life. Paul says at the end of the letter, he says, Don't let anyone cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. What does he mean by that? It's kind of an interesting statement. I mean, you could take it in a thousand strange directions, probably. But what's he talking about? He says, you all are wanting to mark your body to distinguish yourselves as real sons of God, real sons of Abraham. And he says, I don't want anyone, I don't care, circumcision, uncircumcision, we're talking about new creation. But we have the opportunity to bear in our body the marks of Jesus. I don't know what those marks were. Physical, you know, Paul did suffer. For his faith. But those weren't works of the law. Those were the marks of Jesus. And so we want to participate in the life of Jesus. And we want it to be said of us that we bear in our body. The life that we live, it's the life of Jesus. And the things that mark Jesus' life, the, the power and the miracles and the, the love and the service and the healing and also the suffering mark our bodies as well. And that is living uh, in the kingdom of God. Amen? Amen. <clears throat>